1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 17. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the word of the Lord. Now with verse 17, we enter one of the three best-known themes of the book of 1 Corinthians. And here in Bloomington, home of a major research university, we must study this theme again and again, lest the wisdom of man all around us turn us, each of us, into fools. Now, we all know 1 Corinthians 13, probably the best-known text, the best-known theme. It's the love chapter. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. But now faith, hope, love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. That's the best-known theme. The second best-known theme of 1 Corinthians is likely chapter 15, the resurrection chapter, that speaks of Christ's resurrection and of the resurrection of all those who die in Christ. It ends with, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So the love chapter, the resurrection chapter, and then... The third chapter, which is, or the third text, the third theme, which is best known, begins here with chapter 1, verse 17. And here we see the theme of the foolishness of the cross of Jesus Christ, and specifically the foolishness of preaching as a method or tool by which God is pleased to save some from eternal damnation. The foolishness of man and the wisdom of God. And we enter that theme this morning. For Christ, verse 17, did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For several weeks, we've been looking at the reason the Apostle Paul said here that Christ did not send him to, be ba- to baptize. Baptism is one of those rituals that we sinful men are tempted to trust in rather than trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul was making it clear to the Corinthians that not only had he himself not baptized many of them, but that baptism itself is somewhat insignificant in his work compared to preaching. 
The two sacraments our Lord instituted, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are not the tools that God uses to regenerate souls. doesn't mean that God can't use them in this way, but it is a use that is contrary to what they are designed to do. It is the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ that God has ordained to cause men and women to believe in Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul had been sent to preach. And so he's going through and he's describing his calling not be to baptize, but rather to preach, to preach the gospel, the good news. And as so often happens with the Apostle Paul, he gets started on this issue of preaching. He's not called to baptize, And so none of them could say they were baptized by the the Apostle Paul, except maybe this person and this person, and yes, I forgot about this one. And then he's thinking, but rather to preach, and he gets on to this preaching thing, and the Apostle Paul, often when he starts down a road, is like a good coon hound. He follows the scent until he has the coon treed, and then he stands at the bottom of the tree, and he barks and barks and barks and barks. So having emphasized the importance of preaching in his work and its greater importance in baptism, Paul is following the scent, the trail, the theme. Now why is he following that theme? Well, because one of the problems dividing the Corinthian believers was the pride that they took as a church in their brains and their vocabulary, in their intellect. And so the Apostle Paul says he was not only not called to baptize, but that his preaching was not to be in cleverness of speech and not to be with the wisdom of words. He was not to use skillful discourse, what we today would call eloquence. It was not to be a philosophical disquisition. And so in the Greek, it's ouk and sophia Logal, not with the wisdom of reason or words. Now, it's very interesting that on this text, various commentators, students of Scripture, uh, at first they'll kind of make the point that's obvious, which is that preaching is not to be with the wisdom of reason or words, but then they'll talk about the, the place of reason in words. And... Calvin does this. Um, In fact, here, listen. I think I have it here. Yeah, listen to this. This is great. Calvin says, two questions are raised here. Does Paul in this verse completely condemn the wisdom of words as something in opposition to Christ? And of course, you see where he's headed. Completely condemn? And you know the answer. No, 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 the Apostle Paul does not completely condemn. Because what we all know is that Plato and Socrates were almost Christians. Why were they almost Christians? Well, because Plato and Socrates were very bright. All right. So does the Apostle Paul in this verse completely condemn the wisdom of words as something in opposition to Christ? Does he mean that the teaching of the gospel must always be kept distinct from eloquence so that they can't come together and that the preaching of the gospel is spoiled if any suggestion of eloquence is used to dress it up attractively? 
And you all know the answer, right? No, the Apostle Paul doesn't do that, right? So he goes on talking about how the Apostle Paul does completely condemn eloquence. And then he gets to the end of it and he says, summing up this position, he says, I think that in some measure this viewpoint has a permanent validity. I love it. That the cross of Christ is made void not only by the wisdom of the world, but also by the brilliance of words. I think to some degree, in some cases, there is some ongoing validity to this. This is Calvin. All right? He says, But we realize that from the beginning God has so arranged it that the gospel should be handled stripped of any support from eloquence. Could not he who designs the tongues of men for eloquence be himself skillful in speech if he wished? While he could be so, he did not choose to be so. I can find two most important reasons for his unwillingness. The first is that the majesty of his truth might be all the clearer in the setting of unpolished and unrefined language. The second is that he might put our obedience and teachableness the better to the test, and at the same time instruct us in the way of true humility, for the Lord admits only little ones to his school. So far, so good, right? Then he says... But what if someone in our day speaks in rather brilliant fashion and makes the teaching of the gospel sparkle with his eloquence? Should he be rejected on that account as if he had spoiled it or obscured the glory of Christ? I answer, first of all, that eloquence is not in conflict with the simplicity of the gospel at all. That eloquence, when free from contempt of the gospel... It not only gives it first place and is subject to it, but it also serves it as a handmaid, serves her mistress. For, as Augustine says, he who gave Peter the fisherman also gave Cyprian the orator. And so there we have the redemption of vocabulary, rhetoric, sophistry, philosophical disquisitions, and everything that's most precious to our hearts. I'm so glad John Calvin towed the line there. Yeah, I think John Calvin's wrong. Because what I understand this text is saying is not, ook, not, in cleverness of speech. And I don't think cleverness means puns. I think cleverness means cleverness. I think what it means is the things that all of us think make good preaching. Good illustrations, good shaggy dog stories, but we're in a university community and so large vocabulary, good progression, well-ordered, all those things that we think makes good preaching. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that it's always been that the wisdom of man is in opposition to the wisdom of God and that the foolishness of God is in opposition to what man calls foolishness. In other words, that the minute the cross of Jesus Christ is not presented in its glory and simplicity, that then it's about us, it's about our reputations, our egos, our pride, and that the the cross has no power, it's impotent.
when we do that. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about whether or not you believe in the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul says the Lord did not send him to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And so we've set baptism in a subordinate position, right? We've spent a couple weeks doing that. So now we move to preaching, and we're willing to have preaching in the primary position, right? We're all willing now. We understand that's essential. Now we begin to attack preaching and to separate preaching into preaching that has destroyed the cross and preaching that glorifies the cross. And the way we know the difference between preaching that destroys the cross of Jesus Christ and preaching that lifts it high is that preaching that destroys it is eloquent. It has good rhetoric. It has good vocabulary, good shaggy dog stories. It's poetry. And preaching that lifts the cross high is simple. And so I want you to ask yourself whether you honor the cross of Jesus Christ. And a way of finding that out is whether or not you believe that preaching should be simple. And I do think it is that clear. And this is a very bitter pill for us to swallow, given how many of us are involved at the university, because we think that God should be impressed with our gifts and should make good use of them, like Augustine thinks he should make good use of Cicero. And so, with the intellect as with every other gift, everybody should have my gift. And that's the way the church is, right? If I have the gift of prophecy, everybody should be a prophet. If you're not a prophet, you're unfaithful. If I have the gift of giving, everybody should have the gift of giving. And if you don't give, you're unfaithful. If I have the gift of service, if you don't serve, you're a hypocrite. If I have the gift of prayer, if you don't pray, you're a hypocrite. And we all normalize our gifts. All of us say that my gift is the one that really matters. Really spiritual people have my gift. And so in a university community, what? Everybody's supposed to have intellect. And if God valued my intellect the way it should be valued, God would send me a preacher who impresses my intellect. God would send me a preacher who wants my kind of music to be at the front of the worship service. Whatever my gift is, if God were using that man, that man would conform himself to my values, my pride, my gifting. And what the Bible says here is when it comes to cleverness of speech, that it voids the cross, that it renders the cross impotent. Cleverness of speech, screech, I like that one. That's a good Freudian slip. Cleverness of screech. Actually, I'm going to get to that as an illustration later. I'm going to talk about my granddaughter, Bree, who's a screecher. Cleverness of speech destroys the power of the cross. The two are mutually antithetical. They're like that. We relegate baptism to a subordinate position to preaching, and then we relegate cleverness of speech to the cross of Christ in preaching. 
because we know that cleverness of speech makes the cross void because the word of the cross is foolishness, what? To those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so here we see what? We see that everyone that sits under the preaching of the word can be separated into two groups. There are those who are perishing and there are those who are being saved. Those who are perishing, those who are being saved. Only two groups, not three groups. Those who are perishing, those who are being saved, and those who have trusted in Jesus and are saved. No, those who are being perished, those who are being saved. All right, present participle. Those are the two groups. So which group are you? One of the ways you know is to know whether or not you like simple preaching. Now, who's a simple preacher? J. Vernon McGee is a simple preacher. I don't accept his doctrine at many points, but there's no question, if you've ever listened to the recordings of that dead man, he's a simple preacher. You know who else is a simple preacher? John MacArthur. I think it's his simplicity that is offensive to so many people. Because he he doesn't back down from the text. He just gives you the text, right? Who else is a simple preacher? Well, I could tell you who isn't a simple preacher. And I fully expect that this morning you're doing comparatives between Stephen and David and Jake and me. And you're saying, okay, which one of them is simple and which isn't? Now, myself, I have a lot of trouble following Stephen when he preaches. Lisa Bowles tells me that she understands him, but me? I just have a lot of trouble understanding Stephen. (laughs) Now, has anybody in this church ever said that? No, nobody's ever said that, have they? Why? Because Stephen is a simple preacher, right? Right? No question about it. Dave Carell. What about Dave Carell? Is he a simple preacher? Yeah. David, I said this last week, I don't remember the words I used, but I said that David, hobby horse, that's the word I used. When David gets into the pulpit, there is a hobby horse, and he rides that baby. And that's just like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, we, are, we have just mounted his hobby horse, and it is the foolishness of the cross. And he's a coonhound, and he will follow that hobby horse. I like to tell people that the Apostle Paul is so rabid that whole books of the Bible are a parenthetical statement of the Apostle Paul. <laughs> it just goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And finally, you get it, right? You get it, right? So I realize that I'm the complicated preacher here and that everybody else is more simple than I am. It doesn't mean that what I'm preaching now is wrong. It's right. It's right. So this is a weakness of mine. My mother always says to me, Tim, why are you using words like that? Who are you trying to impress? Well, not any of you. (laughs) 
Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. So if we preach in cleverness of speech, we have rendered the cross weak and impotent. It cannot save. And so we come to verse 18. For the word of cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And you think of how many sermons are in an attempt to break that duality into triality or quadrality. You know, in other words, we're not content to have those who are perishing and those who are being saved. I'm not going to get into it this morning, but I want you to note that if we go down and see here um, verse 24, how many of us spend our lives denying the truth in the first half of 24, but to those who are the called? So how do we know whether or not somebody is called? Well, they're being saved. How do we know they're being saved? Because they are simple and humble under the cross. And they want preaching that's simple and humble. That's how we know. And so what do we know about them? We know they're called. Called by whom? Their mother? Called by God. How many of us spend our lives trying to deny the clear meaning and teaching of Scripture that God calls some and does not call others? The simple, simple truths of Scripture. And so we come back to 18, and the simple truth is there are those who are perishing, there are those who are being saved. Those who are perishing, those who are being saved. What does it mean to be perished? Perishing. It means that there are those who are on the highway to hell. That they are headed to the place where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. That's where they're going and they're on the highway. And there are those who are being saved going to the place where the lamb holds court and the work is worshiping the lamb. Think of how often we try to hide this truth. Yesterday I was in a car with somebody who was talking about a relative. Actually, no, it wasn't. It was... uh, it wasn't in a car. And, and there was a discussion about loved ones. And somebody said that they didn't believe that their loved ones were Christians. And I watched the man that was talking to him, and immediately I saw that man's face get crestfallen. He, he got sad. He, he, his face showed sorrow. Why? Well, because he was looking at the other man, thinking about that man having loved ones that were perishing. But think of how we pass that over. We let our loved ones go into eternity. 
And we don't mess up the hospital room as they die. We don't mess up the living room as they die. We don't mess up the family reunions as they die. We don't mess up anything because we've managed to forget that there are those who are perishing and that there are those who are being saved. And we remove perishing and being saved from our brains. There's just this life, and we go along to get along. But the Bible here says there are those who are perishing and there are those who are being saved. And we know those who are perishing because the word of the cross is foolishness to them. So how would you know whether or not the word of the cross is foolishness to somebody? Why bother with somebody? Why not focus on ourselves? How would you know if the word of the cross is foolishness to you? Is the cross foolishness to you? Do you remember me telling you this story? Stephen and David and I were at a hotel. And in the morning we got up and we were walking down to get breakfast. And we walked past this woman who, I don't remember why we ended up talking to her, asking her where we should go or something. I don't remember. But she had this big cross around her neck. And so I looked at her and I said, are you a Christian? And she said, yes. She brightened up. Yes. How did you know? And I said, well, you have the cross on. And she said, oh, well, that's just jewelry. That is weird. People, that is weird. You're a Christian. You have on a cross. Somebody says, are you a Christian? You say, yes, I am, but how did you know? And they say, well, you're wearing a cross. And you say, oh, but that's just jewelry. Is the cross precious to that woman? Do you think the cross is precious to that woman? You don't know, right? But you have a sneaking suspicion, what? If you can put on and off, on and off, on and off a cross as jewelry, and when somebody says, well, I thought the jewelry had something to do with your faith in Jesus Christ, you say, no, it's just jewelry. It's clear that that jewelry has nothing to do, if she has a profession of faith, nothing to do with her profession of faith. She made that clear, right? And so all through life, we go through and we give all, all these tells. You can talk to Michael Foster about tells. You play poker, okay? And as you play poker, you look at people's faces or their hands or their bodies or all kinds of different things that are tells. So what are the tells about whether we're perishing or whether we are being saved? That the cross is precious to us. If we're perishing, the cross is foolishness to us. Remember, Jesus says, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and fall. So one of the ways we know whether or not the cross is foolishness or God's wisdom is because if the cross is God's wisdom, our cross is precious to us. Would you accept that? If the cross is foolishness to us, we will never accept our cross. Would you accept that premise? 
One good way of knowing whether or not you belong to Christ and are being saved or are perishing is whether or not the crosses that God gives to you in your life are precious to you. Because he said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And so if God's cross is precious to us, our cross is precious to us. So if we reject the cross in our life, we don't belong to God. If we reject the cross in our lives, we don't belong to God. If we reject the crosses in our life, we are perishing. And if you're perishing, would it be helpful for you to know it? So forget the jewelry, forget that you're in a church, forget that you're a member of the church, just forget everything and look at your life to see if you appreciate the cross. His and yours. All right, all right, this is an experiment. Now, how would you know whether or not your crosses are, are, are precious to you? Okay, how do crosses come to us? Crosses come to us what? In the form of sickness, right? In the form of adultery on the part of our spouses. In the form of a husband that doesn't provide for you. In the form of somebody that doesn't reciprocate your affection, unrequited love. In the form of bad grades. In the form of a father that has temper tantrums in the form of flat tires, in the form of nobody valuing your gift in the church the way you think it should be valued, in the form of people not reciprocating your fraternal friendship. So in this case, it isn't unrequited love, it's unrequited friendship. Go through all the things that we can have that cause us to suffer and say, are these crosses precious to us or are they indignities which with we should not have to put up. Right? And then you know whether you're perishing or being saved. I saw godliness yesterday. And godliness almost always is trivial. You know what I mean? Godliness is rarely big. It's usually a function of this minute and that minute, and that little thing. I saw godliness at my dinner table. And those of you that are in the pastor's college won't be surprised to know it came from Lucas Weeks. <laughs> Don't worry, I know he's a sinner. Trust me, I know Lucas is a sinner. But last night, Lucas and Hannah, Hannah's our daughter, Lucas is our son-in-law, and Joseph and Heidi and their children were at our house, right? We're sitting around eating dinner, and Hannah and Lucas have been given a cross called Brie. And Brie is their daughter, and she has the biggest mouth in the world. She just screams and screams and screams and screams. And it drives you crazy. You know, you're trying to talk at the dinner table, and Brie's screaming and screaming and screaming. After a while, it grates on you. 
After a while, a grandfather begins to wonder how his daughter puts up with it, right? And so after a while, it became the subject of conversation at the table. And all of a sudden, on my left, Lucas starts laughing. And he says, yeah, he says, today during the wedding, Ben Gulick came up to me and said that if Bree kept yelling, that I would have to leave the sanctuary. And then he laughed, and it was obvious to me that Lucas was taking delight in the fact that Ben had the, the, the guts to come to him and tell him to take his baby and leave. Now, I don't know about you, but if that had been my child, how do you think I would have responded? I would not have been telling this story. I would have been angry. But there Lucas is, humble. He's humble. And so when somebody rebukes him and corrects him, he's thankful. I mean, it was obvious that he was genuinely thankful for Ben's ministry to him. And I'm looking there at Lucas, and I think, where did this monster come from? Not Ben, not Bree, Lucas. It's obvious that he embraced it and appreciated it. And I'm thinking, where did this monster come from? And that's the fruit of the Spirit. And that indicates that Lucas is being saved. And so if I see myself resenting and bearing my fangs when I'm corrected and rebuked, that's an indication I'm not being saved because I resist the cross. Do you understand this? And you say, well, but God isn't like that. You're making, you're making humility into a work. And, it, and, and we can't work our way to heaven. And so humility doesn't matter. And a few jumps logically that there. <laughs> You know, to go from justification by faith alone to humility not mattering and not having anything to do with whether we're saved or not, that's quite a jump. But it it, it reminds me of what it is to be reformed. To be able to be entirely proud without ever worrying about your soul. I think that's the best definition of reformed I've ever heard. I just came up with it just now. I mean, how many, how many are with me on that definition? That's why I'm reformed. Listen, people, every single one of us is going to sign on to the cross hypothetically, in principle, theoretically. But we know whether we've signed on to the cross when we are admonished and corrected and rebuked. And if we reject it, That is an indication that we do not love the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it's impossible to love the one who was made nothing, was obedient to death, even death on the cross, and then ourselves refuse the cross. It's absolutely impossible. And I can go through your life and I can show you There are some of you who, and and you right now, you're going to think that I'm singling you out. And there are two of you I am thinking of by name. 
There are. But I'll bet that there are about 50 people who will think I'm thinking of you by name and what I'm about to say. All right? And there are only two of you I'm thinking of, and that's because I've been dealing a lot with two of you recently. And there are people who every single time any discipline comes to them, they always excuse themselves. No blow ever lands on them. They dance like a butterfly. And they never stop the dance. And it's all self-justification. It doesn't matter if it's their mother, their father, their wife, their husband, an elder, a pastor, a deacon. It doesn't matter if it's Eleanor Rice. They will justify themselves. And if they ever apologize, the apology will immediately be followed by which word? But. It's always but. But it isn't fair. But I didn't mean it. But, 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 but. It's always but. Self-justification. Always. Does such a person love the cross? Does such a person believe in the cross? Is such a person being saved? Jesus said, by their fruit you shall know them. And what that means is that when the Bible tells us that when the cross becomes a means of us being proud and being able to lift ourselves up above other people, that it's not the cross. That it's only when the cross is emptied of the wisdom of man, of the self-justification of man, of the pride of man, of the self-seeking of man. It's only when it's emptied of those things that it is the cross of Jesus Christ. And so verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. And so my question is very obvious and very sincere, and it is, is the cross of Jesus Christ the power of God in your life? Do you consider precious the rebuke of your wife, your husband? Do you love the rebuke of your elder? Do you love it? And if you don't, the question you should be asking yourself is whether there is any true Christian faith in your life. In between the two services, I was reading something, and and what I was reading said, it was an article on the vow that is most broken today, and it started out by saying most people would think that that vow is the vow of marriage, to be faithful until death. But he said, no, it's not the vow of marriage, the marriage vow. And then he went on another one, and I can't remember what one it was. And then he said, far and away, the vow that's broken most consistently today is the vow of church members to submit to their elders. And I think, (laughs) I think that that's true. I often wonder at how easily we publicly say that we'll submit to those in authority over us over the Lord. And then, man, the elders come to you and (laughs) it's like, yikes. No wonder the Bible says that elders should do their 
work joyfully, not resenting it. Why would elders resent their work? Why on earth would elders resent their work? Yesterday, Mike, he and I are working on a project. It's called a house. But I asked him to help me with another one, which is called selling house. Because Mary Lee and I had our house examined, and, and, uh, and uh, so now the people that are going to buy it want us to fix some things. I'm talking to Mike, trying to figure out what we should agree to fix and what we shouldn't. And uh, Mike looks at me, and Mike says, now, if it were me, he said, I would uh, basically say no at some things. But he said, you, you don't like conflict. Isn't, is that, maybe you didn't say, what did you actually say? Is that basically what you said? It's close, yeah. You didn't say don't like conflict. You said, you're going to want to go ahead and do what they tell you to do. And I was thinking, you bet, dude. (laughs) You bet. (laughs) And then I realized that Mike was saying that I should have his gifts. (laughs) Namely, the ability of facing down a rhinoceros charging. (laughs) I think that is pretty much what Mike's gift is, you know. (laughs) If you've got a rhinoceros, send it at Mike. He'll face that baby down and it'll turn into a pussycat and start meowing and running in the other direction, right? (laughs) And then all of a sudden I got mad. Because I realized that that Mike didn't think, he thought I was kind of pathetic, you know. (laughs) And and so what did I say to Mike? I said, Mike, do you know what I spend all day, every day doing? I spend my life confronting people. I do it hour after hour after hour after hour after hour after hour. And very little of it has to do with me. It usually has to do with a suffering wife. And so give me one place where I can just be nice. <laughs> you know, where I, I'll pay you to take my house. How does that sound? <laughs> I'll give you the house and money. How's that sound? <laughs> and so what's the point? Well, the point is that Jesus comes to us, not directly, but he comes to us through men. He comes to us through husbands, through fathers, through elders, and through pastors. And every one of those men are sinners. You can come up with all the justification in the world that you want to say no to the cross as it comes to you from Christ. But if you say no to those crosses, there's no reason to believe that you say yes to the cross of Jesus Christ understand this? Because if any man claims to love my cross but doesn't deny himself and take up his cross, he's a liar. That's just a paraphrase and bringing together of a number of texts of Scripture. And so if you accept this text, then embrace the foolishness of being an adult being a father, being a husband, being a son, and embracing the indignity of God coming to you in the form of other sinful men and saying no or yes. Okay? Let's pray.